announcing the Live From Out There Virtual Music Festival, exclusively on Live by Live, featuring four solid weekends of live and tape performances from more than 45 artists, now running every weekend through June 7th. See exclusive performances from Keller Williams, Turquoise, Nihali, White Denim, Dispatch, Twiddle, and many more. Purchase a VIP tour pass for all weekends or individual show tickets to the Live From Out There Virtual Festival. Join us at LiveXLive.com backslash LFOT. And welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. Uh, again, everybody keeps uh, supporting the people that support us. Check out those streams I put out there every day and do support the charities that are helping out uh, in uh, the setting of the COVID outbreak. There's a lot of great charity being done, and we should be doing this all the time. And so it reminds us that it's time to support those that uh, support those that are most vulnerable. Uh, today, I'm delighted to bring my uh, friend and um, what's the word I want to look for, Neil? Neil Shubin is somebody I admire like phenomenally. He's written, his first book was, I was a big fan of called uh, Your Inner Fish. His new book is called Some Assembly Required, Decoding 4 Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. Neil, welcome. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. And the reason I'm such a fan of yours is I was reared as a biologist. That's what was my original training. And uh, circa, you know, 1970, 1980, if you were reared as a biologist, you were reared as a evolutionary biologist. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Strictly speaking. Uh, and so I've always, whenever I've assessed anything, and I'm always in these situations like, you know, we've been in with COVID and stuff, trying to understand the biology and why things happen my my default my default method is well what did this do evolutionarily what what purpose what function did this or how did this happen from an evolutionary perspective and that has been your life it has been they say you know the great quote from theodosius dobzhansky one of the leading lights in our field is nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution yeah you know and, and that's been the guiding light for for me in my entire career and and sounds like for you as well yeah, and it's weird when people take issue with evolution. To me, it's like, no, 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 there's there, no evolution, there's no biology. It just doesn't exist. That's right. And, yeah. you know, what's remarkable to it, and one of the things actually motivated me in writing this book, um, but motivated me throughout my and, career. And let me, let me before yeah. you talk, Neil, I, I, let me yeah. just put, push something aside right up front. For those of you that are creationists or believe that God did this all, I, I would urge you to look at how evolution really works and the, ex- the awesomeness of it. You will be struck with awe. At, at the at the glory of what God has created, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't look at the reality of biology and not be struck with awe. And if if God yeah. did it, whatever did it, I, I, it's awesome. Whatever it is, but please don't minimize this biological thing and how it works. And the beauty of the theory, the beauty yes. of the data, the beauty of the experiments and the discoveries. I mean, there's an aesthetic to it as well. It's it's yes. it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it really is the way it can explain our world. You know. Yes. Um, yeah, so you, I interrupted you. You were starting to say something. No, I was just going to wax for, on the same point, generating it from a different side. I was just thinking about Charles Darwin in 1859 when he published The Origin of Species. He had no theory of genetics, let alone any understanding of DNA. Yet everything we've learned about DNA in the past 50 years has basically filled in the blanks of evolution. He had no way of knowing about any of that stuff, yet it, it fits so beautifully. And to me, that's the sign of an incredibly successful idea that, you know, that unifies observations, that makes predictions about things that people didn't even know about at the time. Just really wonderful stuff. Right. A lot of people aren't aware that Mendel followed Darwin. People thought that even though there was, there was uh, uh, Lamarckian evolution, all, there's ideas of evolution all the way back to the Greeks. 
but right. none of it had the mechanism of natural selection. That's right. And, you know, Darwin had no idea of the gene, no idea of genetics. And it was actually at the time people criticized him for that. You know, how can you have a theory without understanding heredity? And in a way they were right, but he was only, you know, he was only vindicated, you know, years later. So, yeah. Um, uh, so the book, uh, t- talk to us about the book and what we can learn from it. it, it does it go back to your studies in the, the Arctic? It does. It's sort of, so basically what I'm looking at, what really inspired this is the question, how did the great transformations of evolution happen? You know, how did fish evolve to walk on land? How did birds evolve to fly? You know, when you step back and just look at the endpoints of these changes, they look so impossible, right? You think right. about you know, what has to happen for a critter to walk on land? Yet everything we've learned in the last century and a half has showed us how that happens. And it's often very surprising. And part of the observations that I brought into this, which have really blow my own mind, to be quite honest, is just the power of understanding DNA. So, you know, I'm a paleontologist. I work on fossils. I dig, you know, we, my team and I discovered a fish with arms and legs and lungs and gills in the fossil record. You know, one of the first critters to walk on land uh, up in Ellesmere Island, up in the Canadian Arctic. Um, but you, but you, a, a, you predicted you'd find that. That's right. And, and, and by the way, we weren't right for five years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you had to keep like, looking. We had to keep looking. And, you know, the sixth year we finally found it. It was like, people ask, how'd you feel? I was like, as much relieved as I was joyful. <laughs> well, but, but there's an interesting piece that I, I've heard you speak about, which is that you didn't find an organism that was the missing link. There was a widespread species That's right. that was, was the, the, made the connection. That's right. There are like 20 of these things. And it turns out there are creatures like this known now from elsewhere in the world. So it's just not a one-off. It's a, they're actually not, they're not rare. They're pretty common. Um, but what blew my mind and, 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 and actually what motivated me for this book was just the power of DNA and what we've learned since the Genome Projects. You know, we had the Human Genome Project. It was published around 2000. To great fanfare, cost billions of dollars, you know, over a decade to do. Now we do genome projects in the afternoon for less than a thousand dollars. And we have right. all these genomes. We have genomes right. for corn and everything. Well, when yeah. you look at that, it's just loaded with surprises, you know, um, and it tells us a lot about evolution. So what I like to tell students and, and folks is when you think about DNA, it is a six foot long string of molecules, six feet long wrapped and packed and all folded in on itself into fit inside a cell. And we have trillions of cells in our body. Into the cell nucleus. Not into just the, the cell, cell nucleus. I mean, think about how, what have you, you're six yeah. foot, it's popping into that. So if you take all the DNA in our body, all trillion cells, lay six, you know, them end to end, the DNA, if you stretched it out in our bodies and put it end to end in every cell, it would go from here almost to Pluto. That's how much genetic information we have inside of our bodies. And that's mind-blowing. But it even gets better because as we look at the, um, the genome, what we find are just enormous surprises. You know, we're living in an age of coronavirus, right? So everybody thinks about viruses. It turns out we have about four times more viral genetic material inside our genome than our own genes. You know, our own genes compromise, compose about, what, 2%, you know, the, the, the part that actually codes for a protein. That's what we call a gene. That other 98% always been a mystery in many ways. We're now figuring it out. But it turns out a lot of that is ancient viruses that uh, attacked. They've been, they invaded the DNA. Then they got neutered, knocked out. But they sit there like fossils, you know, in a graveyard yeah. through the DNA. The people um, are thinking of them as fossil record now. Not right, right now. No, no. They're, 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 you know, people talk about viruses as trouble wrapped in a protein, right? These tiny mm-hmm. little, these tiny little pieces of genetic machines, genetic machines wrapped in a protein, they can change the world, right? Yeah. A lot yeah. of them are benign, but no, some of them can look at what's happening now. 
But they're even more surprising. Our relationship with viruses is incredibly complicated. And the story I like to tell about that is there's a lab uh, researcher studying memory genes uh, at the University of Utah. Um, and he's not interested in viruses. He was interested in memory. And he was working on a gene called ARC, A-R-C. And it's famous for being involved in memories. Mice that lack ARC don't remember puzzles that they solved the day before. People that have mutations in ARC have all kinds of cognitive disorders, right? So you'd imagine. So he's studying ARC. And like any good geneticist and protein biochemist, he was both, he, was, um, he looked at you know, the ARC gene and he looked at the protein that that gene made. Standard fare for, you know, for academics. He pops it under a microscope, looks at it, and he had some medical training. And he looked at it and he thought for all the world, he was looking at clumps of the virus that causes AIDS, HIV. He's in a medical school in Utah. So he calls the folks next door. And uh, calls virologist next door, and he says, "Come on over. I got something to show you." So they come over, and he put he has this thing on the on the on the slide, puts it on the slide, doesn't tell them what's on it. And these guys who are experts in you know viral genetics says, "Oh, that's HIV, the virus that causes AIDS." He's like, "Ah, uh-uh, it's a memory gene." So then they looked at the sequence, you know, the genetic structure of ARC. Turns out it's a virus that's been repurposed. This gene was once a virus that was repurposed to now function in memories. And uh, when they looked at it, the the idea is that maybe there was an infection, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of years ago uh, that in our distant ancestors, because it's present in a lot of different species. Um, And then that gene, um, sorry, that virus was then domesticated, was put, was neutered and then put to work uh, for a new purpose. That that fascinates me. Those sorts of uh, genetic shifts that, you know, might make a fin into an arm just by changing a regulatory gene. That's exactly right. And, and to me, these things seem like they should be either radiation or viruses. <laughs> those, and, and I don't think people really build those models often, do they? No, they don't. And, you know, and, and in fact, but we're increasingly doing that because now that we have the genetic tools to look at the structure of these things, we're finding some of the proteins that are active in the placenta, right? Really yeah. important for reproduction. Those two are uh, repurposed viruses that invaded our species years ago and then were repurposed. And what happens is viruses, you know, they go from cell to cell. And when they go from cell to cell, they, um, they make a little capsule that protects the genetic material as it goes around, right? Um, well, it turns out that's what these things are doing. So it's been repurposed. The ARC gene works because it goes from cell to cell, right? And it makes a yeah. capsule. So it's basically taking a viral um, innovation, a viral invention, and repurposing it for you know something that's useful. But that's not always the case, right? Corona. Uh, it's kind of like Eric Kandel stuff. Some of the stuff he was looking at in the periphery of the nerves. He was looking at these kinds of um, informational transmission systems through the mRNA system, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and using that as a way of learn a model for learning. So it's all it's all kind of hangs together, as you know. Right. And it's and it's yes. And it's full of surprises. That's what's wonderful about science. The more we learn, you know, I mean, I love being surprised as a scientist, but sometimes we see, you know, theories come together and that's what makes evolution so beautiful. You know, it's molecular biology, it's fossils, it's embryos, it's all this other stuff, you know, and 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 it's unified as a perspective, you know, and that was one of the um, areas that evolution gets assaulted is in speciation. How do you talk about this, the process of speciation? And, it, and I always wonder if viruses have something to do with it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, well, I'm not so sure about viruses, but I know we have a greater understanding of like when you and I took introductory biology and evolution, yeah. you know, we were taught speciation is this process where one species becomes two. There's like a geographic barrier. You know, we learned all this stuff in our class. Yeah, it's very Darwinian. Very, very, very Darwinian. Yeah. 
Well, we're learning now that there are certain genes that are involved in speciation. They can identify particular genes that are involved when animals speciate. And what happens is these genes actually, um, when they function, or one byproduct of their function, is they cause two populations not to be able to reproduce with one another. So there are right. genes behind creating the, the whole idea of species. The whole, well, so, but it's, already, it's sort of a genetic barrier rather than a geographic barrier. Yeah, you can have, well, you can have geographic barriers. That's certainly a big part of it. You can have behavioral barriers, but ultimately it has to translate into the genes, you know, and that's one thing we've gotten very good at with the molecular biology is sort of the genetics of everything, including speciation. And and honestly, that's what motivated the book, but that's what's motivated my own research, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been a paleontologist for 40 years, but, you know, now I do DNA work. Why? Because it's so incredibly powerful. I didn't want to miss that party. You know, that's just so powerfully you know, explanatory for what I do. Um, like my team and I showed that many of the genes that build our hands and feet uh, that are necessary to build our hands and feet, those genes are present in fish. And what are they doing? They're building the fins of fish. But what are they doing in the fins of fish? They're building the terminal end of the fins, just like the terminal ends of our hands and our appendages are our hands and feet. So what you're finding is that a lot of evolution at the genetic level is repurposing. Not always inventing new stuff, new genes, new things like that. It's using old things in new ways. So the way a hand came about, one of the processes behind it genetically is, you know, using genes that were already present in fish fins, making the terminal end of a fish fin, or just repurpose it to make digits and fingers and wrists and so forth, like you know, stuff like that. Right. I, I think of those as regulatory genes. Right? You know, yeah. Regulatory genes are where a lot of the action is. Yeah, yeah. So to, to step back, so when we talk about regulatory genes, there's sort of two things to think about. You can think of our genes, and those are the, those are the part, parts of the genome that contain the, the code for a protein. Yeah. But then there's a whole nother stuff, which you're referring to the regulatory genome, which tells the gene when and where to be active, right? Yeah. So when you think about this, you know, we have trillions of cells in our body. Pretty much each one of the, those cells has the same DNA inside of it. So what makes a muscle cell in my hand different from the cells inside the retina of my eye? It's not the different DNA that's in the cells. It's which genes are turned on and off, the regulatory genes, what we call the regulatory part. That's incredibly powerful because that's the kind of the computational machinery that tells genes when and where to be active. And that's sort of the software. You know, if you think of the genes as the hardware, right, the proteins, the software is the instructional toolkit that you know, tells those genes when and where to be active as bodies are built from egg to adult and, you know, in evolution. So that's become enormously powerful in evolution, this regulatory genome, um, as you say, because it's, it's showing us, you know, how the computational software, the toolkit that builds bodies, how that came about, how that evolves, how that changes. And again, it's just so powerful because we're finding that many of the differences, say, between fish and people, fins and limbs, it's not necessarily the genes inside. It's when and where those genes are active, you know, and it's that computational, you know, the software, if you will. Right. They're turned on during development in such a way as to cause more elongation of certain bones and muscles and, and uh, the raise of the fingers, probably a little separate mechanism, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Uh, and somehow these things sort of happen because of something that happened somewhere along the, on the, along the way. And, and your search was to find one of those links. Yeah, and we did. I mean, so it was really, so we um, did it in two ways. One is looking at the, the genetics of living creatures and finding, we can ask the question now, I can, I can look at the genome of a mouse, mm-hmm. the entire genome, and I can look at the entire genome of species of fish. And I can ask the question, what's different between the two? 
You know, we can now ask that at the genetic level. And that's kind of one of the things we do. And by the way, it doesn't even, the, the, the wizardry that happens in the lab is really amazing. We can take mouse genes and put them in fish and ask mm-hmm. what they're doing. And we can put the fish genes in mice and ask what they're doing. Yeah. You know, put, pe- put human genes in, in fish. We do it all the time. Furthermore, we can edit the genome now using a technique, as you know, called CRISPR-Cas genome editing. We can actually edit fish genomes. We don't do it with people. We do it with fish. Um, and we can remove genes. We can move them around. And so we can really sort of monkey with this and to ask evolutionary questions. Um, very powerful. But then the other approach is just the classical one, which I do. You know, I, I would now work in Antarctica. I used to work in the Arctic. Now I'm further south, uh, way further south. Um, you know, looking at great transitions. So I can predict likely places to find fossils. You know, I, there's a simple toolkit. You know, you look for places in the world that have rocks of the right type and age to answer whatever question interests you. In my case, I'm interested in how fish evolved to walk on land. Takes me to rocks 375 million years old, rocks that were formed in ancient rivers and streams. Okay, I go in the literature. We led us to the Arctic. That's how we found that creature with arms and legs. Uh, the, you know, the fish with arms and legs. Um, and it's led us now to Antarctica for a similar sort of find. But what, can you talk about it? Yeah. So we've been working in Antarctica for three years. Um, it is uh, just a challenge <laughs> working there. Um, but it's remarkable. We're working in rocks that are a little bit older than the Canadian Arctic stuff. They're about 380 million years old, 385 million years old. We're in Antarctica. So imagine the ice plateau, just just a, a horizon just of nothing but ice. The ice is at about 5,000, 6,000 feet. So it's a, it's, you know, it's high up. So we set up camp there. We're working on the mountain ranges that actually poke through the ice, the Transantarctic mountains. So where we're at, you could see, just imagine it's a horizon of, uh, of ice, but it's punctured by these mountains that poke through the ice. So you might have 2,000 feet of that, of those mountains that are popping through, right? So we snowmobiled those, set up camp, you know, it can vary in temperature from zero to minus 40, you know, depending on the day, it's pretty brutal. Um, but those rocks that are in Antarctica turn out to be perfect for our study. They were, Antarctica was not always at the South Pole. It was more towards the equator way back when. It was a warmer climate. So when you crack inside those rocks that are about 380, 385 million years old, you find a tropical world. Oh, you know, wow. isn't that amazing? <laughs> you know, here I'm like minus 40, you know, freezing on a glacier. Um, but in the rock, it, tropical plants, tropical fish. Yeah, it's a whole different world. Huh. And we, so we found some of the earliest sharks. Uh, freshwater sharks. We, found, we know how the rock, how this all transitioned south like that. Yeah, we can follow it. So what you can do is, um, you know, using the notion of the, the theory of plate tectonics, continental drift, but we can also look at signals in the rocks themselves to show us the latitude that the rocks formed in over time. So we can actually map over, you know, hundred, you know, over tens of millions of years how Antarctica went from the towards the equator, shifted to the South Pole, yeah. and. And as it did it, it went from a tropical rainforest environment to this frozen wasteland. But like, you know, I mean, where I work, there's... I always, I always wondered if any of those asteroid strikes uh, accelerated any of that over the... And no, one, no one seems to... I never find that talked about anywhere. No, I don't. We don't really. So no, it's more, something like that is much more related to the uh, the asteroid strikes have a huge effect on the Earth. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, giant. But this is much more due to the internal sort of convection inside the Earth itself. We think you know there's a lot yeah. of theory about that. Um, anyway, so this thing motored down, uh, and then the climate changed. So we found some of the earliest sharks. We found some of the earliest bony fish. We found a relative of the creature um, up north, uh, lower in the tree. It's just as a field day for us. We're going to have to spend, you know, my lab's shut down right now. So we can't really 
work on the stuff. But um, when we resume, we'll be back in business looking at the fossils. The the technology's changed a lot since I worked on my you know the Arctic fish. We now you know we used to like when we worked on a fossil, you'd sit with a needle and a pin vise and remove the rock grain by grain. And now we don't do that. Now we throw it in a big high powered CT scanner, not a medical one. This is like for industrial use. It would like dry you. (laughs) You It's like 240 kilovolts. So you throw the rock in there and you can see right inside the rock and see the fossils and we can sort of prepare it digitally and get a digital capture of the thing. So we have one downstairs here. Um, And yeah, that's where we have, we're just going to mass produce it. You know, just going to scan every rock we brought back from, we brought tons of stuff back from. from And and this is a river environment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ancient rivers. I heard you say that it was a pretty um, hard to last long in those rivers. No, you wouldn't like it. So basically it's a fishing (laughs) fish world. We wouldn't last long because, you know, basically you have 15 foot long predator fish with teeth the size of railroad spikes. Okay. Like giant crocodile kind of things. You had, even the small fish are nasty, big wide heads like monkfish with teeth that are interdigitate, you know, like just brutal. So, you know, basically everything's a carnivore in these ancient streams. And so I like to say it's a fish eat fish world. Three strategies get big right because big fish eat little fish yeah get armor you know get body armor like you know external like bony skeletons or get out of the way you know get on land yeah that's that's kind of what happened back in the devonian so so talk about the, the specific fish and and what you found even back to the urine or fish part um, yeah because, because that was interesting to me and since since we talked about that i've gotten involved uh, in a lot of theory about uh, the development of the branchial pouches, which is sort of what you were looking at in the fish. That's what we're and, doing. Yeah. And it's connection to our social functioning. It turns out that uh, there's a lot of information we get and use that comes developmentally from those same regions that you were looking at. Well, there's a lot of, you know, there's a glandular tissue in there. There's all kinds of stuff. So the, so basically we designed an expedition to find one of the first fish to walk on land. And we looked at rocks of a particular age and a particular type. And we found, after six years, a fish that has, you know, arms and inside its fins, has lungs and gills, and all well, that I also, stuff. I also want you to talk about lungs and gills when you have a chance. But go yeah, ahead. definitely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we, you know, we found a fish that had all that stuff, and then, you know, we found twenty more of them. We found small ones. We found big ones. We found the front end, the back end. We now know the rocks we're, you know, we're looking at. So now we extended the search to Antarctica. Um, it's just been a gold mine, and. You know, and when you look at a fish like what we found in um, in the Arctic, um, it has an ear bone, a single ear bone, one bone in its middle ear, right? And that bone um, is really once was a uh, gill bone. And yeah. those gill pouches you talk about that you know that are you know the gill pouches that form. So basically, in early development, well, what we give, have give them a little phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny. Yeah. So what we get is when if you look at a human embryo a few weeks after conception, what you see is like the head developing, right? And you see these paired. Um, sort of paired primordia for the eyes, but just below it in the area called, we call the pharynx, kind of the throat area and the, you know, that area, what you find are a series of about four swellings, varies by species. Some species have five swellings, but we have about four and those swellings contain a bunch of cells and those cells, if we look at them in fish, okay, in those swellings, they become portions of the gill apparatus, the muscles, the nerves, the bones, the arteries that form the gills, right? What do they do in us? The first arch, that first, I'm sorry, that first swelling becomes portions of the lower jaw and two bones inside our ear. The next one 
forms one bone inside our middle ear, as well as a little throat bone that lies at the base of the tongue called the hyoid. And then the other two become portions of the, the voice box, as well as all the muscles and nerves and bones. And, and the thyroid and some endocrine Thymus, stuff. thyroid, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, glands. And they all correspond to this fundamental organization that we see in the early embryo. Yeah. And I remember when I saw that for the first time in the anatomy class in medical school. Yeah. Uh, it blew me away. I could not believe I, too. that. Too. Uh, I could not believe that. I, and, I think that's why I got I got hooked on now um, the the poly, what's called the polyvagal theory by Steve Porges, where he's do, doing uh, hooking vagal and autonomic informational flow through that branchial pouch development, whereby there's this social emotional system that allows us to literally like tune our ear to the prosody of our mom's voice. And 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 our voice and our voice box to communicate social information again through prosody and and tone and it's all autonomic, it's all yeah, hooked well, into the to the parasympathetic system. Wow, I love the parasympathetic system. I need it now. It's the relaxation system. And so yeah. I'm trying to, you know, we have the, as you know, two systems: the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. One is the sort of fight or flight response, sympathetic. The other is the parasympathetic, the rest, the calm, relaxation response. In the age of COVID, I like my parasympathetic. Yeah, both <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, so it's also the, the heart. It's also the heart, and it's yeah, also, that's right. And eighty percent of it is 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 afferent. So that's you're right. actually getting a ton of information from your chest from it, heart yeah. into your emotional systems. Yeah. Well, that's why, you know, when you think about sort of meditation practice, the first thing they teach you is to control the breath, that's right. right? And that's because that, that getting back to your afferent thing, you know, getting back to sensing that when you, the minute you control your breath, you're, you know, you are that the parasympathetic and sympathetic are kicking in and it does affect your mental and cognitive state. And that's been known for, you know, millennia, you know, um, and that's why breathing is so fundamental to a meditation practice, as well as everything we do. You control the breath, you control your concentration is a lot of it. Um, so I interrupt you again. You were trying to tell about that. No, the, so you interrupt me in a good way. That's awesome. The, the, um, <laughs> the ear osicle. The ear osicle and the Yeah. So you have an entire, so basically in Tiktaalik, the ear of Tiktaalik, this creature, this the critter we found up in the Canadian Arctic, you know, has a single bone in its middle ear. We have three. When you trace the history of that bone in Tiktaalik's ear, or the Tiktaalik, actually better trace the history of the bones inside our middle ear we have three of them you find an entire tree of life two of those bones correspond to jaw bones and reptiles one of those bones corresponds to a gill bone in sharks and fish crazy how do i know that i could trace the fossils that show those bones getting smaller and smaller and moving into the ear in the fossil i could trace it from embryology i could trace those four pouches that we see in early development. I could trace the cells in there and compare sharks and people and reptiles and show you that. I can look at the DNA that drives all that stuff. It'll show me the same thing. Oh. And so three Incredible. lines of evidence. Boom. Incredible. Our ear was once gill bones of bones in our ear, once gill bones of sharks. Two of those bones, two of the other bones were once jaw bones of reptiles. An incredible story. And you see it written in the nervous system and the skeleton and the muscles, all the stuff we can trace back like that. Um, and I got to tell you, the first time I learned all this stuff, um, it blew me away. You know, <laughs> um, it's uh, and that's what that sort of those sort of sorts of things that sort of led to Interfish, the book, being yeah. written. because yeah. you know, having multiple lines of evidence shows something that was like incredibly surprising uh, to most people. They, you know, it's really surprising to most people. <laughs> you know, your ear bone was once a jawbone of a, a reptile or a, a gill bone of a shark. But that's the case. And so when you look at a, the creature that we found in the Canadian Arctic, it shows a transitional stage and all that sort of stuff, you know. It sort um, of proves the theory. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Now, now, 
explain something to me that maybe I'm, I'm not quite thinking clearly about is that I've noticed that particularly in neurological mechanisms through evolution, we tend to layer things on top. We don't move into different, I'm sure there's some movement, but there's a lot of layering. You know, we have a, we have an ancient parasympathetic and a more recent parasympathetic system that we, we didn't eliminate the old ancient system. We just piled on top a new parasympathetic system. Uh, and it is, is that another way things evolve is sort of like piling on as opposed to migrating? Or am I, am I thinking no, you're making total sense. Yeah. So yes, one way of evolving, and that's, this is one way, there's others, is to pile on. That yeah. is just add new stuff. So you have something that works, keep it, just add to it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we see that a lot in embryological development. Where there'll be a you know stages of embryological development where you know go from egg to adult, creatures might evolve by adding new stages at the end. Keep what works, keep all the other stages, and just add stuff at the end. And that's actually a very common way of evolving. Likewise, when you look at neural evolution, some of that does come to adding new systems on what works. You know, so that way you're not like monkeying with something that's actually working. You can yeah, you know, keep this, or, or you keep might this. really I, I, the way evolution works. You know, you if you let something go, I mean, you better be sure you it was a good thing to let go. You know what I mean? Yeah. You are getting it back. Yeah. You got to like, you know, you got to redesign the motor while it's, yeah. while the car is moving. And right. so that's what's happening here. And that's why that, that when you're talking about layering on, that's one yeah. good way to do it. Another good way to do it is to duplicate things and then change them. And we see that in the genome a lot. A lot of new genes appear in evolution, not just de novo, although some do, you know, just add a, you know, just no, no, no antecedent, but a lot of them are, duplicates. That is, you have a gene, some process, some error happened during, you know, the, the, the division of cells or what have you. And you, instead of having one copy of that gene, you end up with two copies or four copies or eight copies. That happens a lot. Um, and then what happens when you do that, you now have lots of copies of that ancient gene, and now things are free to vary in, in other ways, right? So now you've layered on top, if you will, by, by, by copying. And, and if, you, if, the genome if, you, if you, if you, you know, one of the things when I was studying genetics, we didn't, we couldn't figure out how that packed six foot of DNA could unwind and, and read it. You know, how, how do you unpack it and why isn't it spread all over the place? You know, how, how does that happen? But some of that unwinding and folding is set up to make those kinds of errors. That's exactly right. And if we didn't have errors, that's we error. wouldn't have evolution. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And so that's, and so a lot of the errors happen in terms of the how. So basically what happens is as genes are being turned on and off, that six foot long package of DNA inside the cell, it opens and closes in certain ways. It changes its shape. Yeah. Um, and those changes can, you know, can affect how genes are turned on and off, you know, or, or the, accidentally cross over and duplicate something. That's right. And then when you end up, when you do that, you'll end up with not one copy of a gene, you might end up with four five, six, seven, eight, whatever, you yeah. know, and, and that is actually fuel for evolution as well. Cause those new copies, you can keep the original copy, doing its old function and then the new copies can change in certain ways that way you you know you can change the motor of the car as it's being you know as, as the car is going forward that's 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 how a lot of it happens and i i heard your interview with sean carroll who's a friend of our show and just an amazing guy and he was very impressed with your salamander story so perhaps we ought to share that with my listeners oh salamanders i love salamanders that's the other thing if i i mean i'm i'm kind of crazy i love salamanders there's lots of uh, amazing stories with salamanders so there's two but the one i really love is it, it traces back to to like 
Darwinian times, right? So this is like 1859, 1860. There's this guy, Auguste Dumouriez, <laughs> sitting in, um, in the Museum of Natural History in Paris, right? And he was the keeper of reptiles and amphibians. And so when expeditions would go around the world and they'd find cool stuff, they'd bring it back to Dumouriez in Paris. He was, you know, the expert. He would, you know, he was, he was really pleased. So anyway, an expedition from Mexico came back with a special kind of salamander. It was a salamander that was big, you know, about uh, four inches long. That's big for a salamander. Um, and it had fully aquatic features. It was an adult, and yet it had full gills, external gills. It had like a, a tail that was, um, uh, that was like a, a fin. It had limbs that were kind of fin-like, very aquatic. And the researchers and Dumeril were really interested in this because maybe Darwin just published his theory of evolution. Maybe this salamander will tell him about how creatures evolved to walk on land. So anyway, he had about six of these salamanders, and they're all big with external gills. And he's excited to work on them, but he had other projects. So he, he put them in a box, as salamanders are easy to keep, and threw them in a menagerie and forgot about them for a while. Came back to the, the enclosure months later, and what did he see? He saw two different kinds of salamanders in that box. He saw his original kind, the one that was aquatic with the external gills and the, you know, the fins and stuff. Then he saw another one, full-grown adults, with no external gills, with full-on lungs, with total you know, terrestrial land-living habits, not remotely water-dwelling. It was like he had two, something magical happened in his box. And he's like, you know, it's like he put chimpanzees in his cage, you know, one month and then came back half a year later and found chimpanzees and gorillas, <laughs> you know, in the same cage, right? And so... um and so what happened? So Dumeril's scientist, he's pretty good. So he figured something had to happen here. So he started to like to look at the development of these things. And that's where he found what the magic was. The, what happens in salamanders is typically they hatch from an egg. They swim around as larvae in the water. External gills, like sort of fin-like limbs. They have a tail that's aquatic and all kinds of other stuff. And then at some point, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, And, and then at some point, they undergo metamorphosis. Simple shift, change in the level of hormone, this case, thyroid hormone, causes a change across the entire body. They mm -hmm. lose the gills, they, the fins turn more into limbs, the tail becomes more terrestrial, and boom, they're fully terrestrial adults. What he discovered was in his box, he started with the population of, of salamanders. These were ones that didn't metamorphose for whatever reason. And in the box, basically whatever conditions in the box triggered metamorphosis, triggered a, a hormonal shift. So now he had two kinds of salamanders, not one. Now, what does that discovery show us? Its discovery shows us that subtle changes in levels of hormones in development mm. can cause changes throughout the body. So you don't need all kinds of different genes at, you know, to change at once. You can have just a one gene, two genes that are behind the, you know, the timing of the, you know, secretion of this one hormone, thyroid hormone, and you'll get widespread changes across the body. So it was a great example to show how tinkering with small changes in the process of embryological development can produce huge changes uh, in evolution. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a form of puberty. 
Oh, exactly. I it's mean, salamander it's, puberty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, metamorphosis of fourteen-year-old humans. Right. I mean, it's it's that's what happens to humans. They turn into different creatures at a certain phase when a certain hormone turns on. And imagine you take all that sturm and drang and you put it just into like one week. <laughs> so imagine uh, a one-week right. line. Oh man. Yeah. yeah exactly. it, it sort of feels like that's <laughs> but there's experience talking here. That definitely. <laughs> g- give me more on gills and lungs because that that goes at that issue. And I I you I heard you talk about before and I couldn't quite get my head around it. Yeah, so this is what's amazing, okay? We always associate, so if you think about when creatures evolved to walk on land, what did it take? Well, they had to have arm bones inside and wrists, but they also had to have lungs. Yeah, the arm bones and the fingers things does not impress me nearly as much as lungs. And this is where the story gets super surprising. Yeah. If you look at the distribution of lungs in the animal kingdom, who has them? Well, creatures that live on land, reptiles, mammals, birds, amphibians, but also fish. And in fact, the most primitive condition of fish is to have lungs. This is the Lung, part I couldn't get my head around. Where, it's where amazing. Are, most where people, are they? And yeah. You say lungs, what, what, what are they? They're alveoli? Alveoli, surfactant, lobes. They are, in lungfish, they're identical in certain species to ours. And then if you look at some fish like rayfin fish, this is one called polypterus, they have lungs as well. They're paired. They have alveoli, surfactant. Surfactant is a little bit different, you know, but they are lungs. And in fact, when you look at the genes that you know, form our own lungs, we can identify those genes, the DNA. Same thing. These genes are active in these fish as well. And so if you look they, at the... And do these fish lungs transmit oxygen with water as opposed to no, air? They don't no, have oxygen at all or... Now, these fish are air breathers. And so what happens is air breathing in fish is a very common strategy. Most people don't know this. Oh. And this, is what, uh, this is a big theme in the book, actually, is that the, um, uh, so the oxygen content of water can vary a lot. Okay? Sometimes, some, sometimes it's high. Sometimes it's low. These fish have both lungs and gills. So they use their gills when the oxygen content along of the water is pretty high. But when it drops, they use their lungs. They go to the surface, take gulps of air, come back down. So think about the lung as sort of an accessory organ. It's sort of a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a secondary organ for when the, the oxygen level in the streams won't cut it. And, and, so and that's, hold on. A lot of fish have that strategy or a few? Yeah, few, uh, like, a few. lot. The most primitive fish have that strategy. Uh, and okay. if you and look on. at most primitive fish, let's think about that for a second. Is that be, why would that be? I'll tell like, you. So, yeah. so basically the, every fish has, of some sort of air sac in its body. Most okay. every fish, you know, ninety percent of everything. And so basically, you have a, they have a sac that lies next to the esophagus. Okay, and in some fish, that air sac is a swim bladder. They use it for neutral buoyancy. It's oh, there you sac. go, there you go. Now, now in other fish, it's a lung. So they have one or both, and it's so basically you either have a, a lung or a swim bladder. Every fish has some sort of air sac. So there's, there's a lot of stuff in evolution where something that had one function all of a sudden subsumes another function. This may that's be exactly it. So this is the idea here. So the 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 origin of air breathing did not involve the origin of a new organ. It Got involved it. changing the function of an organ that already exists. Yeah, yeah, and when yeah. we think about that. That's a is that incredible? And most people don't know that. And yeah. that's actually one of the big things in the book. I wanted to point things like that. The same thing's true with feathers. You think, well, feathers help uh, you know birds fly. That's a rose for you know bird flight. No, they rose in dinosaurs eons before, you know. And so what? feathers what, arose what not for flight. What was it? Well, thermoregulation, yeah. uh, courtship displays. The fossil record clearly shows that some of these the dinosaurs related to birds have 
full downy feather feathers and and it, they're very common in the fossil record that was a huge surprise well, and by the way I, I would I, when i look at the fossil record now you know looking at the you know archaeopteryx and stuff and and you look at some of the giant dinosaurs too they, they had duck bills i mean why didn't exactly. we think about this before <laughs> and some of them some look like ducks well you know duck the, the duck bill thing you know we see that in mammals too like a platypus yeah. the, yeah. the critter from um uh, from australia duck but that duck bill uh, is that that kind of bill is we see it again and again and again. There's yeah. certain things in evolution we see again and again and it again. It seems not. It doesn't, from a human perspective, it doesn't seem very adaptive. But clearly, it had major utility at some time. Yeah, if you're living in water, it's a good, you know, it's a good way to catch stuff. You know, it's a big, yeah. it's a big net. But uh, the, you know, the, this lung and gill story is amazing because if we lay, it's 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 not a one-off. That is the way evolution happens. Most yeah. of evolution happens not by you know new structures coming about, but repurposing. You know, finding new functions for structures that evolved eons before. Yes. So if you look at the fish that were living in these ancient streams 375 million years ago, they already had fins with limb bones inside. They already had lungs and gills. They already had necks, and they were using them to, as fish to live on the water bottom, to live in the shallows. So they already had the toolkit necessary to walk on land. And when the impetus came to walk on land, they had it. They were ready to go. So it's really funny that, you know, having, you know, thinking of this story writ large, the way you've been describing it to me and, you know, helping me fill in some of the pieces in my own knowledge. Now I immediately start thinking, well, how did we get mammals? How did that happen? (laughs) That becomes my next question. Because everything makes sense until there. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. Now we got something totally different going on. Well, mammals, I actually, I began my career not on fish. I began my career actually on mammals. <laughs> it's like I went to graduate school to work on fossil mammals. I got bored of mammals. But um, I love them. But it's research-wise, I found more problems in fish. So mammals arose about 200 and 210 million years ago. And they are, they are, their closest relatives are these creatures we call mammal-like reptiles. They are reptiles that look very dog-like. So one of the things, dog, dog-like, yeah, dog-like. Yet they're reptiles, huh. and so the and there's a lot of diversity of them. But the ones that are, you know, that are closely related to mammals look really dog-like. They don't have hair or anything like that. But if you think about mammals, you know, there's lots of traits that 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 are distinct, distinctive in mammals. You know, one is having an ear with uh, three bones inside it, middle yeah. ear bones, the three middle ear bones, and that's kind of unique to mammals. Turns out we can trace those middle ear bones all the way back to reptiles to the jaw bones using the fossil record, and we can do that with the DNA record as well. Um, but it's a very beautiful series. We can show how mammalness gradually arose at the end of the Triassic from one group of reptiles. They got smaller and smaller and smaller, probably nocturnal. You know, so that's probably behind the metabolism, the high metabolism that we have. Maybe that because mammals have warm bloodedness. Um, probably once they became warm blooded, they needed integument. They needed skin structures like hair to, to, to pull it in. But it's actually a wonderful series to show how these dog-like reptiles got, got smaller and smaller and smaller. Their ear bones, you know, I'm sorry, their jaw bones transformed into ear bones. We can follow that in the fossil record very beautifully. Their limbs changed. It's a, it's a, and we have fossils that show this from around the world, from Russia, from the United States, from China, and so forth. So it's a really fabulous story. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it really is. Now, now you wrote another book. I was, I, I'm not aware about. I have not read called "The Universe Within," and that was in 2013. Let's say Interfish was 2008. So I didn't know you'd written a book in between. What yeah, was that, one? that one. So that one really touches on some. I was always, I was a child of the 
two things when I was one reason why I'm a scientist is the Apollo space program. When I was growing up, seeing humans walk on the moon just blew my mind. And the other was Carl Sagan and, you know, the, you know, his cosmos and all that. And so this was sort of um, an ode to Carl Sagan because, you know, he always talked about stardust, you know, how we are stardust. We're related to the stars. The, the, the matter that makes us was born in the, you know, the fusion reactions of stars. Well, in writing inner fish, I was impressed by even more than that. That is, you can trace, you know, the history of the formation of the cosmos, the solar system, the formation of the planet, those great events inside our own bodies. You know, so we, our own, you know, our own presence on Earth, uh, our own structures are related to the formation of the solar system. You, do you go back to the first and second law of thermodynamics or where we No, going? I actually go back to the Big Bang, but one of the, uh, but I trace it even further and further uh, more recently. So let, let me give you one example. Hmm. So much of human evolution, it, it relates to the ice ages. There, there have been ice ages, the ice is, you know, ice has gone from the poles towards the equator and back. And that dance of the ice has really changed the climate at a particular time in our own evolution. So we wouldn't be here in the same way if it wasn't for ice ages. It turns out that the, one of the main factors driving the ice ages in the distant past is changes in the orbit of the Earth and our relationship to the gravitational relationship to the planet Jupiter. So it's an amazing story. Really? Sounds, yes. I've not so heard this. Yeah. So basically, if you think about the solar system and the you know, planets are orbiting around the sun, yeah. well, you have these huge, massive planets, the gas giants, Saturn, and Jupiter, that they affect the orbit of the Earth. So what happens is the orbit of the Earth is it can go from being sort of more of an ellipse to a circle. Mm. It can go from the tilt of the Earth can change a bit. And that does it on regular cycles of 100,000 years, of 40,000 years. So it's a regular cycle that are based on our orbital relationship to Jupiter. So when we're close to Jupiter, it exerts a gravitational pull on us, changes the orbit of the Earth. Well, those changes in the orbit of the Earth, it's been shown, and we've known this for about 60 years, um, uh, changes the climate of the Earth in very predictable ways. So you can map the changes in the ice levels at the poles most recently uh, to changes in the Earth's orbit, regular cycles in the changes of the Earth's orbit. So I'd like to show how, you know, our relationship with Jupiter and our, you know, in the solar system has affected our own, you know, and our own evolution. And we can see that record in mapping the skies, but also in mapping the ice and also in mapping, you know, human evolution. So, it's, and, and by yeah. the way, it's, it's so cool. I mean, how deeply connected everything is. That, that is something I'd heard about. And, and then I, again, my head always goes back to sort of the, cataclysms we've had in this on the earth and didn't the poles shift at one point you know oh yeah the poles are shifting all the time too yeah Yeah. i mean and uh we've had cataclysm we've asteroids hit the earth yeah that wiped out life we've had the oceans get um get poisoned get you know get hyper acidified that causes lots of extinctions you know the earth has witnessed some incredible you know revolutions and changes you know through its time and um and, and and species have tracked those changes. Well, and, and now, we, now that they tracked it, they, they this this is the big evolutionary challenge, right? That, that now the evolutionary race comes in, like let who can who can shift, right. and adjust, and survive in whatever the new environment is in the new world. So you get yeah. basically you get these events which kind of reshuffle the deck, change everything, and then species that were formerly super successful no longer can cut it. They're they're removed from right. the scene for whatever reason, and then new players come on you know, to new things. And so you see these events that sort of reset everything. It resets like an asteroid wipes out a bunch of species for whatever reason. Then for whatever reason, those ones that survive now have a, inherit a whole new world 
right. and they can do new things. And so those resets have been a very important thing in evolution. So, so fascinating. Well, I, I appreciate you writing the book. I, got, I can't wait to read it. When I, I guess I heard, I heard you talk about it before and I was like, okay, that's, that's my next book. It's <laughs> some assembly required decoding 4 billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. You can follow Neil at neilshubin.com. Also Twitter and Instagram at Neil, N-E-I-L. Shubin, S-H-U-B-I-N. Are you writing another one now? No, I was actually going to be on a book tour for this one, <laughs> which got canceled. So, uh, yeah, I'm using that time to think of a new one, actually. Neil's in the National Academy of Sciences. He's uh, a professor at the University of Chicago. What are, you, what are you teaching primarily now? So I teach undergraduate anatomy. I'm not teaching this quarter, but I, next quarter I will. I teach a course, oh, two courses, actually. I teach an inner fish course. Uh, which is basically tracing the evolutionary history of the body, you know, into deep time, you know, fish and worms and flies. Um, and then the other course I teach, I, I, I work with an, a cosmologist and it's a course called Origins from the Big Bang to Human Consciousness. So basically oh it's 13, <laughs> 13.7 billion years of, uh, of the evolution of the, the, the world. And, you know, in that's the years. book. That's your next book. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Right. Because I, I, I became a fan of Sean Carroll because I, I know, I don't know if you listen to his podcast, but yeah, he's, he's awesome. Yeah, definitely extremely good at explaining the fundamentals of physics, you know, and, and as, as a biologist, I was, I've always been fascinated that, you know, these, these molecules that form because there are these physical forces that it, I'm not even talking about atomic forces. God only knows the influence of those, but I mean, thermodynamics and energies and, you know, entropy and enthalpy working itself out. So these proteins fold and then they behave in a certain way because of the laws of physics. That's right. They don't behave that way because they know how to behave. It's the laws <laughs> of physics and, and, and the mathematics around, around the probabilities of them behaving in certain ways. That's right. That's life. That's it. That's where life came from. <laughs> and the story. So, yeah. And, and so, you know, to try to make sense of those things, the, the, the math and the, and the complexity and the, and the probabilities. Well, let me, let me, let me finish with this last, uh, let me ask you a philosophical question because I'm sure given you have a similar view of biology to my own, um, you have thought about free will. Uh, and are you a determinist, a compatibilist, uh, or a free will denier? How do you come in on that, sir? <laughs> I kind of think it's kind of, we don't have much choice in things. I think biology is, uh, but, biology but, but, but let me, let me push you back and say, but biology is a giant probability equation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that infinitely probabilistic system, there's room for, I don't know what, something where there's something. <laughs> I think knowing a feeling that I have free will, and I'm more of a compatibilist in some ways, but okay. I mean, feeling that we have free will definitely impacts our, uh, the way we choose things. But you know, the more you study biology, the more you realize that, boy, so much is hardwired in our system. Now uh -huh. that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean walking through my day that everything I do is determined, but boy, those outcomes are, some outcomes are going to be much more likely than others, probabilistic yeah. Yeah. based on the structure of our brain, the way our nervous system works. And, you know, and the history that our brain, you know, encountered as we grew up. But, but categorically, humans live in a better world if they are at least compatibilist. At least yeah, no, I like, no, I, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. And I, and I think, you know, crime and punishment and all these important things only work if you think about it that way. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, and again, even though we may be determined, some of those external forces help with those determined behaviors. Oh, most definitely. Oh yeah. Most definitely. No, no. And it would drive me crazy if I thought I was completely determined in everything, but right. Yeah. That's why I'm at. So well, listen, Neil, it's a delight to talk to you again. Uh, I can't wait to read the book. Uh, any website or any place else you want to uh, refer people? 
Yeah, you can just go to our TikTok website, tiktolic.uchicago.edu, has a lot on the fossil itself. My Twitter feed, I'm always posting stuff on, uh, you know, Neil Shubin on Twitter, um, posting pictures of Antarctica and the Arctic and crazy stuff right. about genetics. Have a lot of fun with it. And TikTok is spelled T-I-K-T-A-A-L-I-K, TikTok Rosea. Yeah, an Inuit word. It's awesome. It's awesome. Well, Neil, thank you for spending time with us. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. I'm so, so excited to talk to you again, and congratulations on all this and all your success and scientific success as well as literary success. I think it's fantastic. So I, I can't wait to read it and be a part of it. Well, thanks much. Take care. All right, Neil. Take care. Cheers. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D R D R E W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.